You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Whether this is really the beginning, whether that's really where the Perak break should be, is not our interest now. For our purposes, and we'll take that. And and uh, and Parshat Bichukosai has a structure that looks uh, superficially to be very balanced, right? There's the Imbichukosai situation, and then there's the the Imbichukotai team Asus part of it, right? And the Imbichukotai Telechu thing leads to lots of rewards, and the Imbichukotai team Asu thing leads to lots uh, leads to lots of punishments. Um, I have argued elsewhere uh, that this is not an exactly parallel structure, um, but for our purposes, it will do. And there are all sorts of approaches that are built fundamentally on looking at it in that structure. And let's take a look at how the Nitziv begins introducing the issue um, from a Parshanu perspective, and then we'll see how he, he deals with it from a theological perspective. So he says, Im So the first thing he says is, don't give me the Rashi answer. Ein lefaresh chukotai mitzvot sh'ein bahem tam. Don't say that in the means you dafka follow those mitzvot that are um, irrational, that have no humanly intelligible purpose. And it's an interesting reason as to why. Why would the Torah talk about them? It sounds like there's a bias here, right? That they're the, they're the they are not as important as the um, intelligible mitzvot. So if you right, they might if, even if you concede both kinds of mitzvot, which as you know is a is a machloket. Um, still, why would you lead with the chukim? Okay. Secondly, he says, Secondly, he says, wait, it doesn't say chukim or mishpatim, it says chukim bet mitzvotai tishmaru, so if that's the case, so then uh, mitzvotai is a broader term and includes chukim, so now you're, you're saying A and then A plus B, that seems to him not be, to not be a, uh, a good structure. Mishumachi, he says, Pirish Rashi b'shem akaraftonim, Rashi says in the name of right, the Medrash, uh, Medrash Halacha, right, Okay, so this line, Shetiyu Melim Batora, is a line that is much beloved in um, Shivot. Um And the truth is, I think I hear it in my mind in Rebbe Chassim Zechalabracha's voice. Um, everyone tries, what does it mean to be Amelim Batora as opposed to just Shetiyu Torah? Um, and Shetiyu loves it, uh, loves it as well. Um, but as opposed to his usual reading here, the right, and this is part of why it's really, the right is, the Siv is usually, the whole bias of his commentary is to make everything about Talmud Torah. And there is a lot of stuff in this parak that it makes about Talmud Torah as well. But this time, he's not, right, he's going to go away from his usual bias and move us into a somewhat larger picture than just saying everything is about Talmud Torah. Right, so he says, Shetiyu HaMelein B'Torah, right? So again, usually love that, that everything really matters is right it's just about being more and more intense in Torah. The whole writ the whole Talmud is built on you know on, on intense, sweaty absorption in Torah. But Lafizet it says Mashmod Kukosai, Kemosh Kosafi Kamapamim and he says if that's right that we're talking about a Melin Batura, so then what are the Chukim? What does it mean to be to be Holeik in the Chukim? Shahema Yudgimu Midoshara Nechkeket Bahem. Right? So Nitziv's general explanation of of a of a chuk is not a an irrational mitzvah, rather a chuk is a rule of interpretation by which other laws are produced. Uh, right, they're the patterns, the, engrave, the engravings in, out of, right, of which other mitzvot, uh, which other mitzvot follow. So Shetiyom Elam B'Torah fits in beautifully here, we say, right, it means you have to be engaged in the, right, deeply in the process of interpreting Torah 
uh, so as to produce right so as to produce water. But he says about Biraba Isa, but the Medrash Agada, it does not say Shapirmela Batura. Instead what it says is it means the chukim, the chuk, the chukot, uh, right? It's plural. It's it's, uh, it's feminine here. I don't think that um, let me see if there's any consistent. I don't know anybody who's consistently distinguishing chukim and chukot. Although uh, maybe it was Rajaran who would tell us that the Malbim has such an um, such an explanation. Um, so he says that Rabbis that the chukim here doesn't mean the chukim of the of, of by which Torah is made. It means the chukim which I have used to as the pattern. Right, they still use chukim are the things are the the fundamental patterns out of which other things emerge. But here it's the things that right that are the patterns of heaven and earth. The od harbe olam and other yisodei olam. If you look at the medrash, it's actually talking about uh, the sea. Um, maybe that weakens it. Maybe not. Okay. So now, what does that mean? What does it mean? Meaning that you should follow in the patterns by which God created heaven and earth, the laws by which God created heaven and earth. So there might be a strong temptation, if you have a philosophic bent, to say, ah, he's talking about something like what we call natural law. Right? The idea that if you just look at the world, you'll, dis- you'll determine some form of, uh, behavior- of behavioral norms. Um, right? There's a whole debate right, whether, in fact, there is such a thing. Um, there's a debate about whether the Ramam has such a thing. This is a machloket, I think, between uh, Marvin Fox and um, I forget who the other side famously is. Um, Fox does not believe in natural law. Um, there is the Rutenstein has an article in which he challenges the notion right, challenges the notion in Chazal. There are famous examples people cite. I think uh, David Novak is the uh, primary exponent of a claim that natural law is Tamil and Chazal. And there's a famous case right? you look at the you look at the uh, the ants and the cat and things like that, and you learn things from them. And Rosenstein points out, but you know, all these animals have other have other uh, have other characteristics as well. We don't want to learn all the characteristics. We can learn business from the ants, but should we also learn microbiotomy, whatever it may be? Um, so there isn't really a good argument uh, for natural law in uh, in Chazal as a formal philosophic um, concept. And I don't think that's what Nitziv means here either. Right, so it says, This is what this is what how what he understands Midrash Rabbah to be saying when it says that to follow the chukim you're the chukot you're supposed to follow are the chukot uh, via which heaven and earth um, were uh, were developed. Okay, so what he says is it's not a question of following predetermined patterns. It's a question of doing the things that sustain heaven and earth. Um, okay, so it's not right. So right. So the, to, the, to follow God's chukot is to do the things that sustain the physical world. And this is a This is a condition that God is asking from us. She asked that we should do this so that the the world is maintained in some form of order. Okay. So if, if you say that im just means it, and it's an unbiased it, right? If you do this, that, and if you don't do this, that, and the, right, and the person making the condition doesn't care which way it comes out, it's just a description. 
right? He just, he, right, he, he permitted them, right? He just said, okay, there's no purpose in having a legal system if people aren't listening to it, right? Right, so people were breaking it, so God just said, okay, it's not law anymore. So the Gemara says, it's great, it's great misguide, right? This doesn't make any sense at all. What happens then, right, so that what we're doing is we're making, uh, uh, we're rewarding people for law-breaking. If you break the law enough, so then we just, uh, right, so then you're no longer punishable. So that sounds like a violation of the principle of right, that people shouldn't be able to gain a legal advantage by breaking the law. Now, the truth is there are cases where, where, where that has to happen. Uh, you know, if you break, a, if enough people break a minute, it stops being a minute. Um, we talked about so maybe at least Maharaj Chayas thinks that if everybody stops keeping a Drabanan, so then in fact that stops being an enforced Drabanan. Most people don't think that. They think that the rule that you can't make a Xera, that most people, most people can't stand up with is judged at the outset of a Xera, and it's not that any later time. But you can certainly make such an argument that it means that. So the Gemara's question isn't absolute, but the Gemara takes it as an absolute question. It can't be that because people didn't keep the Shev Mitzvah Benoach, that God just decided that um, that they didn't have to anymore. Right? That seems like a, a grave disincentive. And what is left then? Right? Is that the, right? I think that the deeper question, which the Gemara doesn't ask, is do you really mean that God has no interest in what human beings do? That he's just ab- right, abandoned the world from a... Uh, from a normative perspective. So the Gemara answers, an answer that seems to uh, put the problem entirely the other direction. And Hashanish ain't mekabling skara. Right, so, so it doesn't mean that they're allowed to do it. It just means that they, don't, they no longer get, uh, get rewarded for doing it. So that's a very odd thing, right? No longer get rewarded for doing it. Um, so the assumption is that uh, they still get punished, right? They, it's not that they're removed from the realm of skar of onis, but they're just removed from the realm of skar. So that is really a, uh, a serious problem. Um, so the Gemara then says, Umakshe, the Gemara then asks, how can you say that they don't receive the word? But we have a brisa which uh, which gives uh, summarizes. Asher ha'adam v'chaybahem, which is also uh, here, right? Afilu oved kochavim she'osek b'torah. So the Gemara there, another the Gemara there, and that's a, a, a challenge in its own right. The Gemara says, how can you claim that Non-Jews don't get rewarded for doing the Sheva Mitzvot after the, uh, for keeping the Sheva Mitzvot, right? Moshe Maluka says, after the, uh, after whatever this moment is, which we're going to assume is at the moment uh, before Matan Torah. Uh, but there's a, there's a Brisa which says that even Oved Kochavim Shosek V'Torah, even a non-Jew who engages in Torah, is Harayuki Kohen Gadol. And so we try and figure out Harayuki Kohen Gadol. What does that mean? It means that, um, it means that uh, they get lots of rewards. That's the Gemara's, uh, the, the apparent impression of the Gemara. And the response is, in Mashani, the Gemara answers, So they still get reward, but they get reward um, less than they would do if they were doing something commanded. But they still get punished as if they were commanded. So this doesn't make any sense at all, uh, at all either. Um, really, if you tr- try and try and make it um, coherent, it's problematic. It's kind of, I guess, an idea like the Egil, where Egil's punishment is delayed forever. And may, you, know, you could try and argue that what, you know, here, here the punishment is amortized, right? So you know, God takes all the rewards for, of Is Mitzvah Ose for, uh, forever in history and says, okay, so I won't wipe the world out now because, even though that's what your punishment really deserves, because 
I'm amortizing, like, you're, you're just going to be stuck with uh, student debt forever. I don't know how morally satisfying that is. The Gemara of Bava Basra, when it quotes the same Sugi, he quotes it from Avodazara, the Gemara, sorry, Gemara of Bava, Bava Kama, um, follows this with a story which has as its, um, as its m- moral, that God never shortchanges anybody their reward, talking about uh, talking about the uh, talking about non-Jews and their reward being uh, having having children who convert. It's a um, but I, I always argue that it's you know it's obviously deliberately ironic to have a, a resolution by saying oh the, the don't worry they don't get the reward that they really deserve, followed by a story that says the moral of the story is that God never shortchanges anybody. So this is very problematic in its own right, but the Mishnah does not have that problem. So we're not going to go there. And also, um, I have argued that in its original context, uh, and that is it didn't refer to non-Jews who remain non-Jews, it referred to non-Jews who converted. But that's plainly not what it means in the Gemara here. The Gemara here uses it um, to deal with the question of the Shorah Mitzvot. Um, so those are side issues in terms of what that Gemara means. For our purposes, what Nitziv emerges with is a... Um, is a Gemara which says that the s- that after Matan Torah, non-Jews still get reward, but not the reward of a mitzvavos. Okay, and here the Nitziv, nitziv um, right asks what I think are the the sensible questions. He says one, um, one he says, v'tarich bir heach mashba hamimlitas hakatuv raava yafter goyim. The first question is just a linguistic question. Rabbiatir sounds like he permitted, that is untied. What does it have to do with Scharva Onis? Right? That, doesn't, right? that sounds like it's dealing with something that's at the fundamental level and not on a level of, of what you get rewarded for. That's a good question. Vesu, and then he asks the, 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 um, the fundamental question here, which is, Really, they are commanded. So he doesn't quote the Gemara in Babakama, but he just asks the question, what kind of solution is this to say that people are doing the same thing they were doing previously under the same regimen, right, same command, and yet all of a sudden, their reward is reduced. And the reward is explicitly not the reward it's supposed to be. Okay, so here's, here's his answer. Um, he says, this is, this is what he intends. What you should understand is reward and punishment from mitzvot are not at the um, they're not decisions of the king. So sorry, I skipped the line. Sorry. So when we talk about reward and punishment from mitzvot. We d- we don't mean that God as King has the c- has the arbitrary power to decide when He wishes to give reward and when not. Ella, right? The proper understanding of 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 Sharnonish, and this you recognize, this is uh, an idea that Rambam is very strong on. But many you can come to many different perspectives and still uh, still come up with this um, with an idea like this with very with many different uh, important nuances. Rather, reward and punishment are are spiritual medical prescriptions. And what they say is, do these things, and you'll be rewarded with health. Don't do these things, and you'll be and you'll, and you'll be punished with ill health. Those are not the doctor's decisions. The doctor is being descriptive, 
and then you can decide which one you want, right? So, um, right. So the doctor, do, right? The doctor, in that sense, doesn't necessarily have a rooting interest, um, and we'll see how how tightly the metaphor works. So there's a doctor who warns you off these foods because they punish. Um, he's not telling you that I will punish you if you eat these foods. He's telling you this is the way the world nature was created, that if you eat these things, you will suffer ill health. Right, so also mitzvot and right, sins and uh, good deeds and sin, mitz- and sins, whatever you want to call it, we have observances and transgressions. They were founded by God. So God set up the world. He's very careful not to say that there's something that exists independent of God's will, but God's will, God set up the world in such a way that schar ve'onesh follow naturally from observance and transgressions, and right, and they're not anymore a function that God just tells you, I will will reward and punishment. Okay, that also assumes all sorts of interesting uh, notions about exactly, you know, how the world functions in terms of the will of God and Ramban, and right, it's, you know, does, does, you know, is, are there things that don't happen by direct will that we just, right, but that's not, that, for our purposes, we're go- we'll be uh, straightforward theologically, and claim, right, you know, that it, it's as if the world goes on its own, and without any, right, and God doesn't have to do anything, it doesn't have to exercise any, any kind of independent act of will to reward you for a mitzvah or punish you for an avera. The world is just set up that way. Right, so that pasuk is fun, right? Figure out does it that really mean you're supposed to read that pasuk you know, as from the mouth of that's the way the Medrash reads it, from the mouth of the uh, of the Almighty, uh, right? The bad and the good don't come, right? That's because God's not coming to the mouth of the Almighty. God already God already said I'm putting it in before you, Bracha al right? Or we could read it in context as right? Okay, right. So we could read you, that's one of the psukim that can be read. With uh, with with um, incredulity or not, and see, of course, the Medrash is not reading with incredulity. So, okay, that's our vision of ordinary starvonish. Starvonish just happens. Okay. Um. Okay. Um. So now he says, "Vareze kimos starvonish shavarose." So this is like the reward and punishment of the doctor. Right, the, the, the doctor doesn't punish you when he finds out, when he finds out that a person violated his caution. The person is punished by themselves. And it's not like the punishment of a king, which requires a decision and, and an action on the part of the ruler. Okay, right, so we can talk about what, how how monarchies really function, right? Is this true, right? Of all political, is it all political systems? Is it Dafka arbitrary kings? Not our issue right now. Okay, now he says, right? So he explains in great length the matter of punishments. Right? That it's the, the, the parable given is a doctor who warns the, the patient, don't do these things. When the, when the, uh, when the patient actually suffers, Amar Asmi. Right, so he confesses, "I brought this upon myself." Okay, so far we're still that side of the equation we get perfectly well. 
And his claim is that in the ordinary run of things, that's what Tzar Onish means. God sets up a system, and presumably this was the system for the Shefa Mitzvot, and it is the system that we have now at the Matan Torah. If you do the, if, right, if you do the things that God sets up as the things you ought to do, then good things happen. If you do the things that God sets up as the thing you ought not to do, then bad things happen. Okay, now we now there's a question that's really worth asking. Does God want us to keep the mitzvot? Is the right, is the will of the commander um, that the mitzvot be fulfilled? Or is he like a doctor who warns and informs? That he doesn't really care that a doctor, whether the patient, whether the person follows his caution. Because why should the doctor care? So this is a very odd portrait of a doctor. Very, very odd portrait of a doctor. Doctors really don't care what the outcome is. They just are computer diagnosticians who tell you that. And so I want to hold on to that because it may be that it's very important that that portrait of the doctor is unrealistic, or it may be that's really what the Mitzvah Mitzvah thinks of doctors, right? That you pay the doctor, the doctor gives you the prescription, and then it's up to you. And if you don't follow the prescription, the doctor says, okay, serves you right. Okay. But he says, But the truth is that that's not what God is. God wants us to keep the mitzvot. So what is God similar to? He's like a doctor who, right, who cautions his son. He really, really wants the son to right, to follow the prescription. So that the son will stay alive. And here's right, the powerful rhetorical shift. And that um, by doing this, right, when the son follows the doctor, the prescriptions, he preserves the world of the father. Right? So the son is the world of the father. And so the father has... An, absolutely powerful interest in my son the patient right that's why i called the title my son the patient right so now this is obviously playing off the um the right the mishnah that um that right uh, the adam has a chibah yitera that the tzitzel melokim right the chibah yitera melokim and yitzel has chibah yitera right chibah yitera is an iklu bani lamachem right so right so that right that's one of the classic sources for Allowing every human being to be Talmudim, and yet, if we want to explain chosenness, we use the metaphor of of uh, pa- of the fi- uh, filial metaphor, right, of parents and of of, of uh, parents and child. So here, Kmitziv says, let's adapt that here. That there is the doctor, the impersonal doctor, and the doctor treating um, right, treating their child. Um, okay. So not only is there a difference in the um, in the in the um, in the attitude of the doctor, there's that dif- that difference is also expressed in the way in which the doctor articulates the prescription. Even though in terms of the substance of the prescription, there is no difference. There's a difference in the way in which the doctor expresses it. Because when the doctor 
cautions the son, so he tells him, in addition, right, he tells him, if you're cautious, your father says, not only will you be healthy, I'll also give you toys. Right, the doctor incentivizes the patient to follow the prescription by means other than the natural outcome of the prescription. Because the doctor is afraid that the son might not think that the health is worse or might not believe him, so he has to, but he puts in external incentives as well. But when you um, when you're prescribing for someone else's child, then you don't um, you don't promise toys. You just say do this and you'll be healthy. You let their parent promise them toys, I guess. So that's because it's the the diligence of the son in car- in carrying out the prescription that sustains the world of the doctor because the doctor doesn't want right the son's health is right is really the doctor's uh, right but we're not going to fill in whatever metaphor emotional aspect you want for claiming that children are the whole world of the uh, of their parents and that's not true in terms of someone else's child okay so now we move to the um you know, I'm going to stop for a second. And uh, right before we go to draw the moral. So does someone have such comments? Like, is this a... Does that strike you as a good portrayal? Or does the, is the, the doctor treating someone else's child a moral doctor? Is that, uh, does that, does that um, correspond to your visions of what doctors ought to be? I think, right, so I think that's right. Someone else want to say, yes? So I think that's right. I think there's a, there's, Sam, do you want to say something?
I think those are there's, there's two really good distinctions here. Um, I like both of them. One is the idea, I think the way Marty set it up, there's a false dichotomy because uh, the Siddha says there's a doctor who doesn't care and there's, right, and then, right, but that, you can say, look, the doctor cares, that's why you went into medicine, because you want people to be healed, but it doesn't mean, right, it doesn't mean that you can't care more about your family, right, I think that's, uh, that's, um, that's one distinction, right, so you don't have to make it as, as sharp as the Mishkiv does, we'll have to see whether when he spells out the metaphor, the metaphor requires that degree of sharpness or not, and the second thing, as Sam says, is, you know what, there's a point at which it's inappropriate to, uh, right, it's not appropriate, probably, for a doctor to give toys to other, other people's children for them to um, do things, and frankly, not if it's not children, if it's adults, people get to make their own decisions. Um, right, this is bribery, and maybe if bribery is not really a real, the interesting thing, what would we think about doctors who gave lollipops to kids who followed their prescription? We'd probably say, okay, sort of. It gets very expensive if you give every kid a lollipop. You know, at some point, that gets, that gets charged to other people, so the costs get amortized. Um, I could think that there are ways in which we can, you know, just see, like, the job of a doctor is to say, look, this is the thing that will get you healthy, and I want you to be healthy, but to make it the doctor's decision, do this because of me, that might be a boundary issue. Um, you know, some doctors do it brilliantly, and we, appl- and we applaud, and other doctors um, find it very inappropriate because they're not, right, they're, they're infringing on autonomy, and what the boundary is is really a challenge. So I think that's a great question to ask about this as well and to see how it plays out. Seth, did you want to say something? Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. That uh, I could see Rabbinu Tam coming up with an idea like that. Um, interesting. Okay, terrific. Let's go back now and let's play and let's and let's watch how the Mishkiv plays. In. Yes, somebody else. Have a, yes, Mark. Yeah, it could be. Interesting. I mean, this is a dialogue that takes place often in certain kinds of... uh, certain kinds of fantasy novels, I think, where, uh, right, where there's, there's, usually, there's usually a young idealistic acolyte who tells the doctor, you have to go further, you have to push them, but the doctor says, I prescribed and it's up to them now. Um, and it may be that, um, that the notion of the doctor as being deeply invested as your ideal is a modern notion and that classically it just interferes with your judgment. 
Um, that's uh, that's also fair. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, good. Yes. I think that is true of contemporary doctors, and I'm sure you're talking from experience also. Um, I think that's true. You know, I, I think that you know my sister, you know, she wanted to be a doctor when she was very, very young, and that was not because uh, of the inherent intellectual interest. Although you know, it, it as ways to help people, it has more intellectual interest than others. Um, but I think that what Marty is wondering is whether that's a social construct that you could imagine a world, let's say, in which um, fundamentally doctors want to, you know, what doctors are. Are philosophers who have to make a living, and what they really want to do, right? You know, what they really want to do is just, you know, obviously to some extent you have the Ramam, you know, in your head in this way, you know, that that it's just, you know, if really you want to sit and you want to study philosophy all day or learn, <laughs> learn Gemara all day, but you have to make a living, so you go into medicine, but that. Okay, let's right, let's hold that as a machloket for now, because I think it's going to matter a great deal, right? Let's let's play out the nimshal now, and I think that which of the whether you think the model of the wholly disinterested doctor is realistic is going to matter a great deal in either how you evaluate nitziv or what you think nitziv is saying, and whether it works. So let's go back to um, go back to nitziv, and here he, here's here he right, here here he comes in and, and lands the right lands the medicine. So this distinction we just drew between the impersonal doctor and the doctor treating their child as patient, that is the difference between the way God gives rewards to Jews for doing mitzvot after Matan Torah and the way he gives rewards to um, non-Jews for keeping the Shev mitzvot after that. Yisrael, because Jews, not only do we get reward for doing the mitzvot, we get a separate reward, we get the toys, because by doing the mitzvot, we keep the world, right? We sustain the world. And God wants us to sustain the world. I'm not sure I'm, I'm parsing that right, because I have a footnote down here. Um... Um, okay, I'm I'm not reading it properly right now, but I think the outcome is clear, right? God seems to say that um, that you right that you are sustaining the world when you do uh, when you when you do mitzvot. Uh, the world does not depend on them. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that God told them it's okay to violate Shev Mitzvot now. 
it means, and right, so this is why I have to figure out whether this is the same kind of move, it means that he removes the meta responsibility of doing mitzvot. So now, now, if you're not Jewish, you have to do mitzvot because of the right thing to do, and you shouldn't do avera because of the wrong thing to do. But the world will survive whatever decision you make. Bashirad Matan Torah, until Matan Torah, the world was sustained by all human beings. And therefore, So they would receive the reward for keeping the Zion Mitzvot and also for sustaining the world. But he thought that that would not work. You know, God is a rooting interest. And that would not actually sustain the world. And if the, so if the world depended on, uh, for its existence on their fulfillment, so then God's not going to be able to keep his promise not to bring another mabul. So you have to destroy the world again. So now, the Zion Mitzvahs just become a prescription. This is good for you. And therefore, you don't receive the same reward as a Mitzvah V'oseh, meaning Mitzvah V'oseh L'tovas HaMitzvah, Gamkein, right, where the purpose of doing it is not for the reward, um, but the purpose of doing it is because it is the right, the purpose of doing it is the right thing to do. Rather, as if they were not commanded over and above the self-interest involved in doing it. So God becomes the impersonal doctor, and he's not commanding them to keep the Zion Mitzvot because he has an interest in the preservation of Zion Mitzvot. He's just uh, being the benevolent expert and telling them what will help them, what will not do them. But when it comes to the Jews, because that's what sustains the world um, uh, sustains the world is an interesting interpretation of that's what schar mitzvah mitzvah means um, right? God wants the Jews to receive schar right? so really the schar mitzvah is, the, right, is fulfilling the deeper desire of God which is the sustaining of the world um, okay, then he also says, right, should be, um, which is not entirely on the same axis, it seems to me worth figuring out. So when a Jew suffers, so there's a, right, so there's a Gemara that tells you that the Shekhinah Omeret, this is the statement that God quotes from Rabbi Meir after he agrees to quote Rabbi Meir again after the story of uh, Elisha ben Avuya, uh, when he's, when, right, when he refuses to quote Rabbi Meir. And then he's convinced by the whole thing with the metaphor that I, you know, I, 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 uh, I still have to sit and I eat the fruit. Um, so the Shekhinah says when a Jew, when the Shekhinah uh, has a headache when a Jew suffers. So therefore, being punished because it causes pain to God, so doing something that gets you punished then gets you punished, which is and being punished is itself a transgression because it causes pain to God. Right, the mitzvot are in fact the things that heaven and earth are built out of and that are sustained by. Right, so im means as a request because because God is if it were possible. Okay, so let's 
play this out now um, theologically. What Shiv says is, it doesn't make any sense that people could do mitzvot and not get rewarded, and they're commanded and they don't get rewarded as if they're commanded. That can't be. So it has to be that you get the reward you're supposed to get if you're commanded. But, he says, there's a meta-command. So the meta-command is that uh, is that God wants you to do the mitzvot because there's something that God gets out of your doing the mitzvot, which is the sustaining of the world. And so if you do that, right, that's like the toys that the doctor gives their uh, the doctor gives their patients, and um, and right and right and presumably also right doctor might spank their kid if they refuse to take if they refuse to take their medicine or take away their gaming privileges, whatever culturally relevant metaphor uh, you want, whatever time right, whatever time you're talking about. Um, so the um, not really that I oppose spanking, right? Uh, but it, it wouldn't wouldn't be out of place in a classical in a classical metaphor. Um, the um, so that, right, that's so that's that's what right. So it's that adi- the additional responsibility the Jews have of sustaining the world, which gives God an interest in our doing mitzvot that enables us to get greater rewards. So there's an interesting thing here. Like, what is the difference in this theology between Jews and non-Jews? In this theology, right, it's it's sort of interesting because you could say we're playing out banim l'makom, Jews are God's children, so God cares more. Um, but the truth is he doesn't say that the Jews are God's world, which is what you would play the metaphor out, uh, play the metaphor out, um, re- or really, if you'd play, play the metaphor out perfectly, you would say, so Jews are God's children, so as long as Jews exist, God, right, God, God's world is sustained. He doesn't say that. He says that Jews are, Jews are instrumental in mitzvot. It's not Kantian. God wants Jews to do the mitzvot because that way God's Shemayim Ba'aretz is sustained. So we might have challenges theologically on that ground, that it, that it makes Jews into means, uh, not ends as well. Um, and then we could challenge it the other way and say, right, if we, if we take Sam's perspective, that it doesn't really mean that God is indifferent to what, um, to what non-Jews do, right? Because doctors really want um, right, doctors really want um, patients to be healthy, as right as you know, Sam said. That's why we run to the fields. We want patients to be healed. So maybe we don't have to take it quite as harshly as Mitzvah says it. Instead of focusing on the his depiction of the impartial doctor, we talk about the limits and what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, and what God does is He enters into an intimate relationship with Klal Yisrael that enables more interference with autonomy. Um, right, that you know that God can offer us toys, um, which He can't. Right, it would be inappropriate to offer toys uh, to everybody else. And maybe right, uh, that I think would be a, a really interesting theological uh, approach. That um, it's not a question, you know, that that we can understand the idea of that relationship. But then again, you know, it has it's the idea of conversion um, implies that every human being has the right to choose to enter into that relationship with God if they want. Um, but it's not that God values some types of people uh, more than others. Um, still, you're left with the notion that, um, that you know, I don't think there's any way to avoid it. In some way, there's a different relationship between Jews and non-Jews. It does, I think, give an elegant solution to the question of what it means to reward them as if they were not Mitzvah V'oseh. It gives you a whole radical new explanation of Mitzvah V'oseh. Right? Uh, Mitzvah V'oseh is not to do it because God commanded it to you. It's to do it because 
God wants you to fulfill His command. Right? The mitzvah of is not right, is to there, is there to be a will of God in there beyond this being good for you. Right? Is there, we want to do it without solving the, you know, with, with the um, with the Nakobi in different doctor. We would say right that um, the doctor is telling you this because this is good for you, and the doctor wants things that are good for you. Right? That's one kind of doctor. And then there's a doctor that only wants things that are good for you. The doctor wants things that will ha- right wants things that will result from good things happening to you. So I think that, right, that's that, that's the ambivalence I have around it in a sense. I guess that there are uh, and here I so I thank. Um, Thank my friend Jeff Spitzer for uh, introducing to me this idea that there are always that metaphors uh, often or always have gaps. It might be that this is in Sunday Peters, but I don't think so. Um, and what's really interesting about a metaphor is not the places where the metaphor matches perfectly, but the places where the metaphor doesn't match perfectly, because that's where you can see what the person is trying to convince you of. Um, so here, are the places the metaphor doesn't match I- are a the holy impersonal doctor, which doesn't match either our vision of doctors or perhaps the vision we want to have of God's relationship to non-Jewish mitzvot. And on the other hand, the um, the metaphor of the doctor, the doctor's world being sustained is because the kid lives, not because the kid will build him a palace. And here, the God's world is sustained because God's world is sustained. Um, it's the second step. So, but right, so and in those gaps, I think are the the differences between a theology of chosenness that is, I think I'd have trouble with a theology in which uh, God is indifferent to the performance of the Shevah Mitzvot, uh, you know, whereas I'm much more open to a theology where intimacy allows um, the breaking of, of boundaries that are legitimate, uh, but because there's intimacy, those boundaries are no longer necessary. Um, of course, none of this explains like why, you know, w- on why God can decide or does decide well, the world used to depend on this, and now it depends on that, right? So that sounds like you're changing the rules in the game. Uh, the world should depend on whatever the world was intended to depend on. Why can't it depend on both, right? In that way, the world is much more likely to survive if it can, right? If if it can survive, if either Jews keep Karyak mitzvot or non-Jews keep Shevet mitzvot. Um, so we could read it that way, that um, that you know that it doesn't it diminishes responsibility only in the sense that now just Jews doing it is enough. Uh, and that's different than a theology that only what Jews what Jews do matter. We could come up with uh, modern metaphors about primary and secondary insurance. Um, so I think there's a lot of there's there's a lot to play with actually. Um, I think it um, I think there is space there, but I think it requires a great deal of uh, formation to figure out exactly where it will come out in a way that uh, would make me comfortable um, adopting it. Okay, what are your reactions to? Um, the theological. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.